Hello, all. This is the January 10th class of the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. I will be teaching the class with Marx's Wage, Labor, and Capital. We are starting on Chapter 4. It's called By What Are Wages Determined? So how are wages determined? We talked a little bit about how the price of commodities were determined. And we learned that it was by the competition between the buyers, between the sellers, and the competition between the buyers and the sellers, by the relation of supply and demand to the supply and of the call to offer. Now that we have established that the term wage describes the price of the labor power, which itself is a commodity, then we can apply those general rules that we would use to determine the price of a commodity in order to determine the price of labor power or the wage. As one commodity becomes cheaper, all others become dearer in proportion to the fluctuation. Yet with labor power, we have to study its peculiarities as a commodity. It's very important here that we understand that it is not quite the same as simply another commodity because of its distinct use value as the creative potential to produce many, many other use values as well. Labor power, being that commodity which is necessary for the production of all other commodities, must itself be produced. And so in order to get into this question, we need to get into the question, um, what is the cost of the production of the labor power? And Marx answers it that it is the cost required for the worker's maintenance and his education and training as a worker. That is to say that there's a certain upfront cost that is factored into this that the capitalist will need to have on him. If someone spends years in training to work as an engineer, his wage will generally be higher than someone whose job requires them only to merely exist. The cost of these simple wages, as Marx puts it, will rest at the lowest end and is merely the cost of these workers' existence and propagation, unlike a worker who requires many more years of training, maybe specialized equipment to learn how to do his job. Now, when there is specialized equipment in the industry or in the job also has to be calculated. The price of this also has to be calculated by the capitalist. First, he has to buy it in the first place, but then he has to replace it over time. So let's say a um, particular machine costs $1,000 and it needs to be replaced every 10 years. Then the capitalist will add to the price of his commodities $100 per year in order so that in 10 years, when the machine has worn down, he's able to take the $1,000 that he has earned from this and replace that out of it. So too is the worker itself. And in fact, in the term, what Marx talks about with the minimum of wages, this applies with great force to the workers at the very, very lowest end of wages because their cost of production is the cost of their propagation and existence. Thus, the wear and tear of the worker is calculated in the same manner as the wear and tear of the machine. And because the minimum of wages holds for the race of the simple laborers and not any single individual, the wages will overall adjust themselves to this minimum. You will find many workers, individual workers, who are literally not being paid enough. They're starving because the amount of work they're doing and then they're getting paid nothing, essentially. But this, Marx shows, and we have to be scientific about this in order to understand the way that capital works, that the whole working class's wages adjust themselves to this minimum. Just as if the price of silver were to increase, 
then the price of all other commodities would decrease and fall in proportion to silver. So, too, does labor power being a commodity. The next section is on the nature and growth of capital. This should be in the next chapter, actually, if you'd like to move on. So let's talk a little bit about what capital is. We've talked a lot about the labor power and the worker. Let's talk a little bit about what capital is, what's the other side of the equation. Well, in Marx's time, the way that economists would speak of this thing called capital, Marx was not the inventor of the term capital. In fact, Adam Smith, who Marx got many of his ideas from, used the term capital to describe he said it was property which brings its owner profit. He describes it in this very simplistic sense. And so Marx, being a scientist, takes this perspective, and then we'll see the different contradictions in simplifying it in this sense. But let's start out with his definition. Marx says that capital consists of commodities of all sorts, raw materials, instruments of labor, and means of subsistence, which are employed in producing new raw materials and new means of subsistence or perhaps new instruments of labor, even. It is under particular social relations that man produces things. So in order to understand capital, we need to understand the social relations under which it exists. Marx says, and it's very important, too, that we understand the social relations, because without these social relations, these things are not capital. Raw materials, means of subsistence, instruments of labor. Marx says it like this. It is only under certain conditions a cotton spinning machine is a machine for spinning cotton. Only under certain conditions does it become capital. Torn away from these conditions, it is as little capital as gold by itself is money, or sugar is the price of sugar. In the process of production, human beings work not only upon nature, but also upon one another. That is, they have relations of production. They produce only by working together, in a specified manner and reciprocally exchanging their activities. I think it's quite eloquent the way he expresses that. To give you an elaboration of that, he goes on to also say, in order to produce, they enter into definite connections and relations to one another. And only within these social connections and relations does their influence upon nature operate. That is, does production take place? That is to say, capital is just like any other system, like slave society, feudalism, communism or capitalism, these are totalities of social relations that describe it, that describe its existence and, and define its existence. And it is what Marx calls a definite stage of development of society that it is even able to exist. Then what are the presuppositions for capital to exist? Capital requires that there be a class of workers already in existence, that have nothing to sell. They don't possess anything but their ability to sell their labor power. And so, therefore, these relations of productions will change depending on the character of the means of production. So even within capitalism or within feudalism and even within communism, the relations of production will change depending on the character of the means of production. Marx demonstrates this beautifully when he says, with the discovery of a new instrument of warfare, the firearm, the whole internal organization of the army was necessarily altered. The relations within which individuals compose an army and can work together as an army were transformed. And the relation of different armies to one another was likewise changed. So too do the social relations change according to the changes in what's called the mode of production, the examples that I've given. Slave society, feudalism, capitalism, and communism as well. Going into a little bit more about the definition of the mode of production, the definition that 
it is how the means of production are united with the laborers. That's how Marx would describe the mode of production in a very simple way. How do these means of subsistence and raw materials and instruments of labor get united with the laborers themselves? Because at all points, remember, we're talking about in history, men work together in social relations to produce whatever that society is, no matter what that society is. And the new societies come out of the old society. It's a straight line. Just because we have New Year's parties doesn't mean that something that we've entered a new universe. Therefore, capital itself is a social relation. Marx said it like this. As a power of a part of society, it preserves itself and multiplies by exchange with direct living labor power. Capital also consists of exchange value. So whereas before we were talking about means of subsistence, instruments of labor, raw materials, those are merely material use values, capital also consists of exchange values because remember, it consists of commodities which have a two-sided nature, that being that they have a use value and that they have an exchange value, that they're produced to exchange. Capital will remain the same even if the material value changes. That is switching copper fittings for iron fittings on a particular machine or something. As long as the social magnitude or the exchange value and price remain the same. So these materials can change. What is popular to be used can change. Capital doesn't suffer at all. Capital is a social relation that is very flexible. Marx says the bodily form of capital may transform itself continually, while capital does not suffer the least alteration. And in order to understand this distinction between material use values and exchange values, We need to also keep in mind that every sum of exchange values is an exchange value and that each particular exchange value is a sum of exchange values. That is to say that you have something which is worth $100. That's worth one one one-hundredth of a penny. Or given something that costs a dollar, it's also worth 100 of those. That's its exchange value. How do these exchange values exactly become capital, though? I'm actually going to share a quote. It's pretty famous, and you may know about it because it illustrates this point quite forcefully and also poetically. It says, capital is dead, that is, accumulated labor, which vampire-like feeds on living labor. The more it sucks, the more it lives. That's a quote by Marx as well. So what this means is that capital's existence presupposes a definite stage of history in which there was a working class to exploit There were working people who had nothing to sell or they did not possess anything but their ability to work. It's necessary for capitalism to exist. That is to say, wage labor and capital presuppose one another. So now we're ready to get into the relation of wage labor to capital. Exactly. I'll start with a quote. It says that the worker not only replaces what he consumes but also gives to the accumulated labor a greater value than it previously possessed. The laborer gets from the capitalist a portion of the existing means of subsistence. For what purpose do these means of subsistence serve him? For immediate consumption. So the worker is divorced of this property that the capitalist has. The capitalist has this property. The capitalist does not perform labor. The worker performs the labor. And so in exchanging this, this is the whole of their relation, that the worker works on the means of production that the capitalist provides for him, securing a wage for himself, and producing 
exchange values and material use values for capitals. Wage labor and capital condition and presuppose one another. That's the way we would say that. So therefore, increase of capital is therefore increase of the proletariat, of the working class. As capital gets bigger, then the working class needs to also get bigger. And you may have noticed this before because this has been a hot topic in recent history. The bourgeoisie, or these capitalist class as we call them, we use that term, claims that the interests of this working class and this capitalist class are one in the same because the immediate benefit to the worker is the increase of productive capital. In an area where it's backwards, it's futile, maybe even, capitalism is actually rather progressive for a time because it overthrows these kinds of more backwards relations. But it itself is by no means perfect or eternal. It also is contradictory. Think trickle-down economics. It claims that the working class and capitalists are one and the same, and indeed by this token they are. The fastest possible growth of productive capital is therefore the indispensable condition for a tolerable life to the laborer. For if the worker does not sell his labor power, capital has no means of multiplying its exchange value. And if the worker does not sell his commodity, he does not eat. Going back to wage labor and capital, condition presuppose one another. To signify that the interests of capital and the interests of workers are identical signifies only this, that capital and wage labor are two sides of one and the same relation. The one conditions the other in the same way that the user and the borrower condition each other. As long as the wage laborer remains a wage laborer, his lot is dependent upon capital. That is what the boasted community of interest between worker and capitalist amount to. So we see that relation of wage labor to capital. If we want to get into a little bit of the history, Marx actually provides an excellent example. And it also goes into the previous section that we were discussing, which is how to exchange values become capital. So he says, in the 16th century, the gold and silver circulation in Europe increased in consequence of the discovery of richer and more easily worked mines in America. And the value of gold and silver, therefore, fell in relation to other commodities. The workers received the same amount of coin silver for their labor power as before. The money price of their work remained the same, and yet their wages had fallen. For in exchange for the same amount of silver, they obtained a smaller amount of other commodities. This was one of the circumstances which furthered the growth of capital, the rise of the bourgeoisie in the 18th century. So what we're going to begin to talk about is what's known as the distinction between real wages, relative wages, and the apparent wages. I'll go ahead and I will switch it over to the Q&A. My question is about farmers, since we went into capital. To give my question some context, I've seen a YouTube channel of a man and his wife that own land. They both have livestock and they farm crops. And guess by this, they own the means of production, and they are very, very wealthy, yet they work for themselves and by themselves. It's just those two people. What class would this farmer of this type be considered, and would they be considered to own capital? They would be considered petty bourgeoisie. That's what we would call petty bourgeoisie, small owner. Now, it's up for debate as to whether or not it actually is capital, their means of subsistence and their means of production, whether they are capital or not. What would describe that is if it were, if they're expanding production, 
Now, if they were just keeping production and it was just a subsistence level, we wouldn't really be able to consider that capital per se. But yes, they would be considered petty bourgeoisie. One thing that Marx describes about capital too, he does touch on it in this text in the next section, but it's raising armies of labor. That's the importance of it, is that capital and wage labor presuppose and condition one another. So in order for capital to grow, the working class also needs to grow. These capitalists are hiring armies of labor, whereas someone who just owns a farm, they're not a capitalist because they're not hiring armies of labor. Thank you. We were talking about how capital itself is a social relation, how capital consists of exchange values and not merely material use values. Capital will remain the same even if the material value changes, that the bodily form of capital may transform while capital does not suffer the least alteration, and that every sum of exchange values is an exchange value, as well as each particular exchange value being a sum of exchange values. Exchange value, in another word, if you're still confused with that, is it's that third thing. A lot of people confuse the price for the value. The exchange value is that third thing. If you have eggs and you have milk, you trade them for one another. They exchange with one another at a definite proportion. How do exchange values become capital? We are on wage labor and capital conditioning one another, and we were talking about how in the 16th century, gold and silver circulation in Europe increased. So the selling of the commodities produced by the worker is divided from the point of view of the capitalist into three parts. First, the replacement of the price of the raw materials advanced by him, as it was mentioned in addition to the replacement of the wear and tear of the tools, machines, and other instruments of labor, likewise advanced by him. Second, the replacement of the wages, advanced. That is to say, the worker has to work and produce that amount of wages again, that same amount. And third, the surplus left over, what's left beyond that. That is, the profit of the capitalist. While the first part merely replaces previously existing values, it is evident that the replacement of the wages and the surplus are as a whole taken out of the new value. The capitalist now, having received the value produced by the workers that he employs, he now has to decide what to do with it. And so it's confined by this relation as well. Remember, we said that wage labor and capital presuppose and condition one another. And in this sense, we can view wages as well as profit for the purpose of comparing them with each other, Marx says, as a share of the product of worker. So Marx says it like this. Capital also is a social relation of production. It is a bourgeois relation of production, a relation of production of bourgeois society, the means of subsistence, the instruments of labor, the raw materials of which capital consists. Have they not been produced and accumulated under given social conditions within definite social relations? Are they not employed for new production under given social conditions within definite social relations? And does not just this definite social character stamp the products which serve for new production as capital? So given the example of a particular industry becomes unprofitable and some of the businesses, they go out of business. They're driven from the market by a competitor that employs new things. Well, those commodities that they have they own them. They have to do something with them. And so all of these concepts that we're talking about, they factor into essentially that, which is what Marx calls the valorization of capital. Basically, the capitalist has to get something. 
for what he's doing. He wants to get beyond it, too. He wants to get more as well. The worker has no such luxury because he earns a wage. I will open up for questions now. People like Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and Lenin, they were highly educated intellectuals and also very brainy people in terms of analytical skills. They had the academic background and the education. And in situations where the working masses in the capitalist countries do not have much academic knowledge and also analytical skills like Karl Marx and Lenin, do you think the working class in those capitalist countries can learn the Marxist ideas about the decadence and the super-exploitation of capitalism through direct experience and rise up against it and take state power? Yes, I do think that they can. And the reason that I say that is not on faith. It's based on evidence. It's based on the evidence of all of the socialist revolutions that have taken place on this planet that have been influenced by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. I've heard that. I don't mean to insult you at all, comrade. But that's something that the bourgeoisie says. That's a talking point that the bourgeoisie uses to try and make it seem as if it's impossible to have revolution. It's not. It's actually quite easy to grasp. And for that matter, I don't even think you need an academic background to understand the conclusions of Marxism-Leninism. Now, you may want to do so because I think that Marxism-Leninism, it's made to grow. Marxism contains a method of analysis it's made to accommodate these new concepts and ideas. And so, yes, you may want to develop and be, become an academician, but you, by no stretch of the imagination, must be one. Thank you. Wage, labor, and capital, value, price, and profit are definitely a component of the foundation of Marxism and Leninism. What's talking about is very, very important to understand how we can get socialism in America. And that's it. This class, it's a very basic part of Marxist theory. Marx wrote even three volumes on surplus value, which is profits. Nobody reads that hardly. Hardly anybody that I've ever met And I used to work at a Marxist bookstore. There was so much that he produced as a revolutionary writer. And we also have to think about the practical instances of all these things. This is also the basics for political economy, knowing these things. That's the necessity of a revolutionary vanguard. That's really what we're describing right there is basically, yes, That's the whole reason we are a party, because most people do not understand these kinds of things. That's what Lenin was describing when he said that it will inevitably be the minority of the class that becomes class conscious. It's a good thing that we study this type of stuff, because we're the people that are supposed to study that. I just want to end it with that. Thank you all for participating.